you know, our world is one where gender and racial bias is real. And global press exists to basically say, like, if you want to know something about Zimbabwe, read Gamutra Masiwa or Linda Majuru, not Nick Kristoff or Anderson Cooper. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest uh, who will introduce herself. Christy, please go ahead. Hi, my name is Christy Hegrinitz. I'm the CEO of Global Press and the publisher of Global Press Journal. So Global Press has been around for almost 16 years now. And uh, it is that we are an international news organization that is really dedicated to producing international journalism in a new, powerful, inclusive way. So when I was in my early 20s, I had the opportunity to go to Nepal as a foreign correspondent. And being a foreign correspondent was my dream job. It was everything I always wanted to do since I was a little girl, to travel the world telling its stories. And as soon as I was on the ground myself for the first time, I realized very quickly that I was the wrong person to be telling these stories. That as an outsider, I lacked the social, historical, political, political, cultural context that local journalists all around me had. I had just two things going for me. One was I had journalism training from reputable institutions in the United States, and I was working for well-known platforms. And it just, it seemed so clear to me at the time that it was, it would be so easy to give those two things I had to local journalists on the ground and so incredibly difficult for me to learn and know the things that the local journalists on the ground already had. So from that insight and a few other really powerful experiences, uh, the idea for Global Press was born. And that idea is simple. It's that as our world continues to change, we no longer need the model of parachute journalism, right? Parachute journalism is the model where uh, outsiders from international news organizations parachute into global communities for two or three days, typically in times of crisis. The negative outcomes of that model are many. One is it's a colonial discipline, right? This notion that we need typically white male people from other parts of the world to come into places like Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean to tell the stories. Um, 
there are other myriad challenges with it. It mm. perpetuates a poverty and disaster-driven narrative of much of the world. And third, it really, I think, erodes trust with news readers, both in the local communities and globally, simply because local people don't have the opportunity to recognize themselves in stories, right? So mm. Global Press is a news organization designed to fix each of those problems. And the way that we do that is we build independent news bureaus in some of the world's least covered places. Those bureaus are staffed entirely by local women journalists who really represent the diversity of that local community. So it looks a little bit different everywhere. In places like Mongolia, we have really dramatic regional diversity. Reporters in the Gobi Desert, Arkhangai province, and the capital. Mm -hmm. In places like Zimbabwe, our reporters are going to come from different tribal backgrounds. We also look at indicators like LGBT status, disability, uh, socioeconomic status, religion, really getting to this core notion that we know there's an evidence-based correlation between who works in a newsroom and who is quoted and featured in stories. So if we want to build a more inclusive, representative media discipline, it starts with how we staff our newsrooms. So once we go into these communities and select these reporters, they go on to work for Global Press Journal, which is our multilingual award-winning news publication that gives reporters the agency to tell the stories they believe are the most important. So our reporters are not getting assignments from, you know, five, 10,000 miles away, and they're not just tasked with reporting their communities in times of crisis. We distribute these stories, uh, both in local language and English, so that we are serving a local audience, giving increased access to information to people who live in challenging media markets, often news deserts or markets that are politically controlled. And also elevating global awareness, giving millions of people across the world the opportunity to really learn about these people in places outside of moments of crisis, because we focus on more feature and investigative consequence-driven journalism. So at its core, Global Press is an organization that aims to create a more informed and inclusive world by changing international journalism, namely changing the story of teller of record. Wow. Um, that, that, yeah, that's that's, that's really exciting and, and, and impressive. And and I, I think your work has all also been acknowledged. But you know, you you received many different uh, rewards. It's actually how I have to admit it's terrible that I found you that late into the <laughs> game. Uh, but but you you just received recently the Amazon Collective Dial Fellowship, right? Uh, I did. Yes. That's not that's not for nothing. So so congratulations with that. I have a couple Thank of you. questions to you, uh, Rishi. Sure. Is that um, so? How do you then identify or find these local journalists? How do you do that? What's the mechanisms? Can you explain that? And then my second question is because our you know as you might know, I work for a development organization. I very much uh, resonate with what you're saying in terms of, you know, we work with uh, our officers. We don't fly in our expats. There might be an expat, uh, so-called expat involved, uh, but mainly our staff are, are, you know, from the local communities, context, our partners similarly. Um, but 
um, well, we have identified sometimes there is a role for, for uh, you know, so-called outsiders um, to make connections, to, to add a different perspective. Um, and, our, and our work is, you know, we are in development, you are in journalism, so the sector might be different. So I would like to know from you, do, you know, is there no role at all? And, and if there is a role, how do you see that uh, changing um, as well? And then the third question is, um, you know, and then when this, those stories from all over the world come, you try to be that platform that uh, ensures that the rest of the world knows about this, right? And and very often it, it's needed because you, your journalists, your colleagues are identifying very often justice-related issues or something that needs to be solved. Um, do you? How easy is it to tell your story in the in the U.S. or in the global um, arena? Sorry, yes, three. <laughs> no, that's uh, right. Yeah. Um... Those are, those are really important stories. So I think the, the answer to the first one is kind of mm-hmm. the easiest. One is that there are no shortage of uh, powerful women mm-hmm. across the world who, when global press goes into a community, who are willing and very, very able and capable of taking on this task of Mm -hmm. becoming the storyteller of record from their community. So we run um, a really robust recruitment. Typically, our biggest challenge is not finding the journalist for the role. It's uh, choosing. On average, we're receiving about a thousand applications for typically three or five employment positions. And I think that employment piece is key, right? Really important to know that global press reporters are not freelancers, right? We are providing long-term, sustainable, high-quality employment. And this is so key to our model and something that I think newsrooms and readers around the world just need to be a little bit more attuned to, right? So many of us uh, spend so much time lamenting the poor quality of journalism in the world without really stopping for a second to understand that most journalism is poor quality employment, right? Reporters receive low, low, dangerously low wages uh, for what is often dangerous work. So at Global Mm. Press, we're not only providing strong salaried employment, our reporters all have health benefits. They get five months paid family leave. And we operate what is widely considered to be the industry's leading duty of care program for local reporters, right? Mm -hmm. So local reporters is the key there because in so much of the journalism sector, again, with parachute journalists, what does the parachute journalist do when something gets too dangerous on the field? They pop on an airplane and they go home, Mm -hmm. right? Our duty of care program is designed for reporters for whom extraction is not an option. And we're not just focused on physical security. We're focused on the interconnectedness of physical, emotional, digital and legal security, because as a news organization, we believe it's not enough to just like keep people alive, but we want journalists to be well, healthy people. Mm -hmm. And the responsibility there really does go to the newsroom, right? The news organization is responsible for setting the policies and the protocols that really allow reporters to, to keep themselves safe. So I think that's how we're able to recruit reporters, but not just recruit them, but retain them. More than 80% of global press reporters stay with us for at least five years, 
I have some reporters who are still with Global Press who joined me back in 2006 in Chiapas, Mexico, in our first ever inaugural news bureau. And they're still here almost 16 years later. And I think that that is just a testament to both the really unique storytelling opportunity we provide, but also the really high quality employment. So that's the answer to your first one. And the expertise question, I think, is a really important one um, because I think there's a kind of a default of how we think about expertise, right? There's credentialed expertise and then there's lived expertise, right? And so in so many um, international news contexts, we see parachute journalists, people who are covering uh, communities and, you know, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean, who are saying, who are using local sources uh, to sort of exemplify a problem, right? How many cliched stories have you read where, you know, the lead is like, you know, some woman who always has like 13 children and is like just the very hallmark of like poverty and sadness. And then the story shifts to say, like, well, look at the people solving the problem. And it's almost always an expat or an international organization or, you know, all of a sudden we're talking about the World Bank or the UN. And so we've used the local source as sort of to exemplify suffering in some way. And then we, as sort of a storytelling trope, then enter the international actor to say, and here's how the world will get saved. And, you know, I think that so often reporters need to be just really aware that word choice and story structure choice actually influences people's worldview, right? And so as reporters, we just need to make better decisions. We need to say, when is a source valuable for lived expertise and for credentialed expertise? And if you need credentialed expertise, the going through a really robust decision-making process to determine when that credentialed expertise has to come from outside of that, that story's border is really, really key, right? How often do we read stories about, you know, Zimbabwe's economy and the economists are in London or in New York? If you read a global press story, you're going to hear from Zimbabwean economists who are not only brilliant genius economists, they have lived experience in their very troubled economy. So to me, that's just the better source. And I think there's just a little bit of bias that we can, you know, that we can hop over uh, as the news industry to really deliver to our readers the very best experts. Is there often a moment where you would want to hear from, you know, some leader in a branch of the UN or at the World Bank? Sure. But I think I would say right now that default is 95% of the time. That's who we hear from. And if you look at a global press story, we study our sourcing. And last year, about 3% of all of our sources were international uh, agents or actors in large-scale organizations. So as opposed to 95% of the time, we're like, yeah, 3% of the time. I think that there's like use and value there. Uh, And so I think it's just... It's something really important to think through because there are consequences, right, to how we represent people and places around the world. Um, And, you know, two of the core components that drive everything we do at Global Press are the, the dual values of dignity and precision. How do we as journalists tell stories, choose words, choose angles, choose experts that balance the dignity of the local person 
with precision so that we can serve the reader, right? Uh, too often, I think that we uh, sacrifice the dignity of the sources in order to preserve clarity for the reader. And at Global Press, we just really don't believe that that's a choice. We believe it is possible to, to balance them. So I think, you know, given all of that, the answer to your third question is, you know, how, how easy is it for us to tell our story? Um, it can be challenging for a couple of reasons. One is... You know, we an or we are an organization that exists to challenge the status quo in journalism. Uh, so journalists covering our story is often hard to find. Um, but you know, there are so many like-minded reporters in the world. Uh, but still, you know, I think earned media and things like that can be a little bit tricky for us. Second is, you know, our world is one where gender and racial bias is real. And global press exists to basically say, like, if you want to know something about Zimbabwe, read Gamutra Masiwa or Linda Majuru, not Nick Kristoff or Anderson Cooper, right? And so I think that statement in itself is one that certainly 16 years ago was pretty difficult for people to come around to, but given the racial justice movements of the last few years and just how the world is evolving and is definitely spinning in our direction because we are seeing more and more readers willing to question systems and structures of power that have long relegated diverse voices in journalism. We actually just conducted a really powerful set of audience research earlier this year. Uh, the U.S.-based audience has never been our priority audience. Our priority audience is always in our coverage countries. But over the last few years, we've noticed a pretty significant uptick in the number of readers that we have in the United States. So we took some time this year to really investigate, like, who are these people? Why are they here? And what we heard so powerfully from readers across the U.S., across demographics, uh, political spectrums, ages, et cetera, was that they are seeking a fuller understanding of the world. And given the opportunity to choose a story about one of our coverage countries, right? These are not places that you hear about in the news every day, but given the opportunity to choose a story by sort of a brand named A-list journalist and a global press journalist who is A-list in her own right, but not in terms of like media prominence or, or recognition, we found that 88% of American readers actually opted to choose the Global Press Journal reporter saying things like, you know, she looks like the people in the photographs. I bet she has better access to context and sources than these other reporters. So increasingly, we're seeing readers move away from that sort of longstanding uh, racial and gender bias to actually say, hey, you know what? I think I am better served by a reporter who represents her community and who can then tell me stories beyond sort of the, uh, the disaster-driven trope. So uh, it is getting easier for us to tell our story because you know, I think the world is just in a very different place to hear it. But our model really seeks to increase access to accurate information in least covered markets. Okay. Now, would the U.S. market benefit from a more dignified, precise, accuracy-driven approach to storytelling? Well, yes, it would. Uh, but our, our model is really to 
to elevate stories coming from other parts of the world. But, you know, a key piece of our model is that we pair our local journalists with global editors. So a handful of our reporters are based uh, in Europe, in the United States, to really give that balance that you were talking to earlier about making yeah. sure that stories are globalized and, and have um, an, an impact on reporters, whether they're in the local audience or, or globally. Great. Yeah, I, 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 again, I, I have to confess that, you know, I, I came about your organization too late into this game, but I'm, I'm <laughs> really fascinated by what you're doing. It's, it, I think it's, it's really good. And um, I said this to one of your colleagues, you know, with whom I talked you know, before this, uh, the way you describe your the theory of change is is really good because you know we within our organization are always struggling with doing it crisp you know so simple but not oversimplify it um, but still get to the essence of of uh, what you're trying to do so so uh, a lot of kudos there and and uh, thank you um, yeah I, I I said if if I would be a journalist that's you're you are running the type of organization I would like to work for. So oh, um, thank you. <laughs> I you know you you know that that uh, this podcast is a spin-off of a hundred mile walk I've been doing for the last 10 years. Now in October I did my 10th to raise awareness about uh, hunger, uh, poverty and injustice. And uh, because of COVID I could not walk with, with folks. So I started to this podcast so I can virtually walk. Um, yeah, so my question is, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles for a course, um, yeah, why would you walk? Uh, I love the question and just the premise of, of your podcast in general. You know, I would walk endless miles for the opportunity to raise awareness about inclusivity and representation in journalism. I think that so many of the world's problems can be solved by putting more power into the hands of local journalists. And it might not seem as tangible as, you know, walking for hunger or health research or something like that, but it really is that tangible because here's what we know. Across the world, there is a huge problem of mistrust in journalism, right? Citizens, readers, they don't trust the news. And when people don't trust the news, the opportunity for mis- and disinformation to filter into people's lives extraordinary consequences, as we're seeing in the United States and elsewhere, is massive. So how do we not just rebuild that trust, but maintain it over time? It's a simple answer. It's about representation in newsrooms and it's about inclusive storytelling. Because when people recognize themselves in the stories that they read, they are more likely to trust that journalism. And when people trust journalism, they use that journalism in education, movement building, policy making, and those stories become the foundation of how we build and organize our world. So in the United States, newsrooms have been more than 75% white and male forever. Across the world, the one thing that all media markets have in common is that media is owned by the most powerful factions of society. If we as a people made an effort 
to include diverse, inclusive hiring strategies in our newsrooms, we would instantly see that inclusivity, that representation mirrored in our coverage. And then all of a sudden, not only would people be able to better trust and leverage high quality journalism, we would be able to better understand our world and our places in it. So I think for me, that is certainly the cause of my life and my lifetime and the work of global press, but it really is a more tangible problem to solve than people often think. Great. And, and can you explain to me um, where does this drive come from, this passion, you know, to work on this? You know, I have had the extraordinary fortune over the last 16 years to travel the world working with some of the most powerful and poignantly important people you could ever meet. And when you read a single global press journal story or spend an hour with any global press journal reporter, the injustice of the back seat that she has always sat becomes so clear. It becomes so real because she is not a white Western educated man or person. Uh, her stories have always been pushed to the background. So the, the moment you have that experience one time, much less the hundreds of times that I've had it over the years, it becomes not just a good idea, but an essential necessity that she becomes the storyteller of record, that we would all benefit from her being the storyteller of record. And I think that's another just really important thing to understand about global press is it's not, we are not a charity. Our reporters are not the beneficiaries of the organization. You are the beneficiary of the organization. The 20 million people around the world across 190 countries who come to read our stories every month, they are the beneficiaries because, because of these extraordinary women journalists, the world really has an opportunity to better understand itself. And that I think is, is just the most extraordinary aspect of global press and, and the very, very uh, powerful people who work here. heard you talk about duty of care and about security well i think we are all aware and if not we should be aware that you know it has become very difficult for journalists for all journalists i mean many journalists have lost their lives um, because they have to work under very difficult circumstances um, so if you talk about security uh, you know and duty of care how you how do you try to give support uh, to your colleagues uh, living in these different uh, countries that's one part and the other question is around uh, COVID is um, you know that again that, that made an additional challenge and in many countries where your colleagues live they don't have access to uh, vaccines um, so can you tell a bit about about that and how that was the last one and a half to two years you know, I will tell you the investment that Global Press has made in duty of care since inception um, 
has been the thing that not only has allowed global press to continue to survive during the pandemic, but has actually allowed our organization to grow and thrive in the midst of the pandemic. So an investment in reporter security um, can no longer be seen as optional. Right, throughout, throughout too much of the journalism space, uh, security is crisis response or something called hostile environments training, where reporters ahead of going overseas, they go to a training that's like, you know, let me put a bag over your head and simulate a kidnapping so that you know how you would respond. Um, here's how you dive in the event that a grenade goes off. And there's actually a mounting body of evidence to show that hostile environments trainings uh, are actually serving a, a negative, they're having negative outcomes, right? They, they increase fear and insecurity and anxiety, number one. And number two, they are not for local journalists. They are typically for the parachute journalists traveling to go over there, right? Air quotes of whatever, wherever over there is. So for us, the duty of care mandate has to be locally tailored, number one. And two, it has to be proactive risk mitigation focused. So at Global Press, about 20% of our duty of care program is training. Our reporters are going through training on everything from uh, physical emergency first aid, surveillance detection, uh, emergency response planning. Then about 70% of our duty of care program is alive in day-to-day protocols. It's how reporters are being supported in the field. It's travel check-in protocols. It's, you know, digital security policies. It's the platforms that we build to make sure that uh, our data is safe. It's our social media policies that we have in place to ensure that our reporters are safe from not just digital hacking and phishing, but the intense digital uh, harassment that reporters across the world, especially women journalists, are now subject to on a daily basis. So the vast majority of duty of care is that proactive risk mitigation approach. Then we save about the last 5% for crisis response because, you know, we choose to operate in places where what, you know, this year we've seen, uh, you know, hurricanes, uh, we've seen in Haiti, an earthquake, a presidential assassination, uh, rise in kidnappings, you know, COVID across the world, a volcano eruption in Democratic Republic of Congo. So we save that 5% for crisis response because crisis is real uh, in things we can't control. But the theory here is that the vast majority of risks that a reporter faces in the field can be controlled for and mitigated for. So the other key piece is that we give our reporters the agency and the autonomy to determine their own risk profile. Right. There is kind of an outdated trope in journalism of, you know, this risk loving reporter who is willing to you know, make total sacrifice for every story. And what COVID has really brought into the fore is the levels of burnout, anxiety, stress and trauma that are alive around the world in newsrooms. You know, reporters experience stress, trauma and anxiety at levels similar to active duty service members. Yet conversations about mental health remain taboo in the journalism space, right? That if you're going to ask about wellness or security, you're going to be labeled a weak reporter who's not going to get the big stories. That kind of mentality has absolutely no place at Global Press. So we actually built the entire organization around this notion that 
reporter and newsroom leaders working together will find security through that solidarity of working together. And then ultimately, I firmly believe that there is no global press reporter in the world who is not crystal clear on one thing, which is that her life, her wellness, her health is more important than any story she will ever tell. We have a pile of stories, potentially world-changing, amazing stories that never made it to publication because the reporter was in too much danger. Uh, And there are multiple ways to make an argument of whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, but at Global Press, that is the most important, human first, reporters first. So that that's our approach to duty of care, and it really does focus on the interconnection of physical, emotional, digital, and legal security. But as you point out, we are working in some of the most uh, challenging, dangerous places in the world. So often it's not enough to just say like, oh, we're going to cross our fingers and hope, you know, and hope for the best. We will build what is necessary. We've built structures to give health benefits to our team in equal measure, no matter where in the world they are. Because we know that emotional security is so important, but also that the majority of global press bureau locations have inadequate or very limited mental health care services. We built our own. We built something called the Global Press Wellness Network, which is a network of licensed mental health care professionals based around the world who speak the lingual languages of all of our reporters, who we pay to be available to our reporters for free unlimited sessions. In 2021 alone, 80% of our reporters have used the wellness service. Sometimes it's for short-term interventions like uh, critical incident stress management. Other reporters are in long-term engagements with counseling providers, and that is something that Global Press happily pays for. So I think it's about, um, I think, to, to realize duty of care, and the reason we call it duty of care, not just safety and security, is because we have known sense inception, that in order for us to do this work, we have to know that we are doing the most possible to keep our reporters not just safe, but safe and healthy. Christy, um, so your, your, your company or a global press so it makes enough revenue to pay for all of that or do you have um you know donations how, how does it work your the business model yeah it's an important question so global press is a 501c3 nonprofit organization mm-hmm. uh our budget is about five million dollars a year And most of that is coming from philanthropic support, but we have also growing earned revenue uh, streams as well through Global Press News Services, which is our B2B facing products and services division. We are um, making increasing amounts of money uh, for earned revenue, but also, and more importantly, bringing some of the best of what's inside Global Press to other organizations, including, for example, duty of care. Right. We offer duty of care roadmap and implementation services to other news organizations and international organizations who understand that the mandate for keeping local staff safe is higher than ever. And so we have created a methodology for how we can get that service into the hands of others um, throughout 
similar with the global press style guide. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is our style guide that really exists, um, in contrast to the associated press style book, which is largely considered to be, you know, the journalism industry's Bible when it comes to style and word choice. And our guide, uh, deviates from the Associated Press style book uh, in two ways. One, where uh, an entry is needed, where the AP is silent, or two, where we disagree with the AP's entry based on our standards of dignity or precision. So we are also offering style guide consultations, implementations, and we have more than four dozen clients now around the world who are using the Global Press style book. So I think through that combination of philanthropic support and growing earned revenue streams, uh, we are constantly focused on the long-term sustainability of our organization. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you about style. You know, but I've, I, I did it for several, <laughs> you have to do that another time. Um, okay. <laughs> okay um, Christy, you know, you just talked about um, a lot of, uh, things to worry about, you know, that happened in the last one and a half year, hostile environments, uh, the virus, etc. Um, but if I ask you to to pick one uh, issue or one thing that you worry about most at the moment, what would that be? I think I think the overarching thing that I worry about most is that global press as a news organization is doing enough to mitigate those risks and to provide for our reporters safety in the best way that we can. We know there are so many things about this work and about this world that we can't control. I always want to, I'm literally constantly thinking about ways that we can improve our duty of care program. Uh, and, you know, we have won our duty of care program won the uh, American Psych Psychiatric Association's Human Rights Prize last year. We were just honored at the International SOS Awards for our duty of care program. And if anything, those awards just remind me that there's more to do, right? Are we setting the new industry best practice? Yes. Is what we're doing enough? No. Will we ever get, will we ever be doing enough? I'm not sure. But I think a lot about just that. Um, I have endless respect for the reporters of Global Press Journal and for the work that they do every day to bring world-changing stories to an audience of millions. And you know, my role and my responsibility is to make sure that they're doing that in the safest and healthiest way possible. Where do you still see hope? You know, I see hope literally everywhere. Hmm. Uh, we uh one of our newest bureaus is uh, in Mongolia. And we had a reporter who earlier this year uh, told a story about the practice of forced virginity testing in high schools and how uh, girls across this province in Mongolia were being virginity tested in schools. And for years, local girls uh, in this area have been protesting and they organized and they brought in Save the Children International to do a study. And still no one was listening. Nobody was really hearing them. And then Korlu, one of our best reporters in Mongolia, she told this story. 
And we published the story in English and Mongolian, and it got massive reach and readership across the world. And then just last month, we learned that the ministers of education and health in Mongolia issued a joint statement saying that anyone carrying out the practice of virginity testing in Mongolian schools would be punished. And stories like that give me so much hope because we know that high quality, dignified, precise journalism is an intervention point. It is an intervention point for every source, for every reader to come together and say, there's opportunities for justice in the world. And that's what our journalists do is they lay out these roadmaps, these paths for people to find justice, whether it's something as severe as the fact that Mongolian teenagers are not gonna be virginity tested in schools anymore, to the very common letters to the editor that we get where people say something as simple as, you know what, I read this and I changed my mind. I had no idea that this was the case in this community or that community. It's also the case in my community. So Global Press Journal is a place where people come to solution share and a place that they come to learn about the world in, in new and powerful ways. Christy, my organization um, is, is is celebrating. I don't know if that's the right word. You know, seventy five years of of uh, existence, and so this is also a time to reflect. Um, you know, how did we do, and how should we do better? And one of the big issues for us is to look at racial justice, racial injustice. Um, my question to you is has to do with that. Is um, if you look at the NGO sector as a whole, and it's difficult to to um, to generalize. I totally get that, but I'm still going to ask you. You know, um, how do you think this our sector has done? If you look back, how is it doing now, and and what should we do better? It's such an important question, particularly because Global Press is both, uh, you know, a nonprofit organization and mm -hmm. also a news organization yeah. with a real commitment to diversity and representation. So it's an important question. I think there are there are a couple of key areas that where NGOs across the world really need to look in the mirror. And one is pay equity. Right. Oftentimes we see, you know, organizations in places like Congo where the expats that live there are making six figure salaries and, you know, the local people who work there are making, you know, hardly able to make ends meet. So I think really looking at wage equity, working, looking at security equity are two huge places where a lot of NGOs just have to take a moment to, to really look in the mirror. And then I think as a larger sector, I think that we have to examine the victim-based narratives that we're telling. And I think that we have to push philanthropy, we have to push funders to undo their demand for those victim-based narratives, right? As people who write grants for a living, we are incentivized to tell these stories of the horrible, impoverished person that if we only had, you know, $10,000, $50 million, a million dollars, how, you know, these like sort of victims' lives could be improved. And I think that we just have to stop that narrative. We have to stop it cold in its tracks. And we have to do a better job of really conveying the reality and the power and the solutions and the complex realities that make communities around the world 
what they are. So I think that this really victim-based narrative that NGOs are incentivized to tell by philanthropy, like I think that is one area where we just really, really need to put the brakes on. And in my experience in 15 years of fundraising, uh, funders are quick to jump on board with dignity-driven narratives, right? Uh, it is it is incumbent upon us to, to change our vocabulary so that we can influence others to change their vocabulary uh, and just to really change the way that we think about people in places around the world, right? That people are not just beneficiaries in need of assistance. They are human beings striving for change. And I think those very those very simple things, looking at wage equity, looking at security equity, and looking at the equity of the vocabulary that we use to describe our people and programs around the world. I think if we were able to make improvements in those three areas, we would not only see a much more effective NGO sector, we would mm-hmm. see a much more diverse NGO sector. That's great. And I and, and really something that my organization resonates with, I mean, the changing of of the narrative. Um, we we uh, always talk about we never go into a community with the question what do you need, but what do you have? It's an asset based approach. You start from there. So I I, I think that's powerful as as well. Um, you know I I try in this podcast also to talk about the sustainable development goals because I really think you know it's not perfect the seventeen sustainable development goals that we. Uh, identified as as a as a world, but that's still that's something that we can work with and should work with. So, if I ask you, Christy, what do you want the listeners to know about sustainable development goals? What is it that you would lift up? You know, I think that I, if I if I if anyone asked at the UN asked me to be in charge of the UN, I would take a totally different marketing approach. I would say mm-hmm. that what I would want people to know is that these sustainable development goals are yours. They're yours. Mm-hmm. They're not the UNs. They're not world leaders. Like they're yours. So really, and what we try so hard to do in our journalism, we don't like outright cover the SDGs, but literally every story we tell is about the SDGs, right? It's about every community around the world who is looking to make girls safer in high schools, who are looking up to you know, clean up uh, fishing practices in Mexico or any myriad of stories in between. The SDGs are ours. And if we don't behave like they're ours, if we don't think about them like they're ours, we're never going to actually realize them. I think as long as they become these sort of like far off distant things that we hope uh, political leaders will, uh, you know, get their acts together on, they're they're never going to be real. So I think just really thinking about them through a different lens of ownership and then trying to find them, right? Do you see them alive in the stories that you know, you're reading in media? Do you see them in uh, the movies that you're watching and the books that you're reading? And then if we just like make them more practical, they automatically become more achievable. It's great. I hope that some of my colleagues are listening and some of our partners as well. So great stuff. Um, you know, I, I I always have these questions as well because I love music and it's a very important part of my life. If I ask you to mention a piece of music or a song that embodies who you are, at least for a you know, big part, um, which song or piece of music would that be? 
You know, I love that question. I have thought so much about this question. I'm not sure that I have a great answer, but I will tell you there is one song that we use a lot in training. We've actually translated the lyrics into a lot of different languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, this song by this beautiful artist named uh, Emily Sunday, and it's called Read All About It. And this song, Read All About It, um, the first line is, you've got the words to change a nation, but you're biting your tongue. And that resonates so deeply with the, the mission of Global Press that, you know, we are going out into the world finding people who, you know, have the words to change a nation and are not biting their tongues. So um, I can send you the link to the song if you've never heard it, but it is, uh, it is just a really beautiful uh, song that really just speaks to this notion of self, self-censorship and what mm-hmm like whether or not the truth is really forbidden and how each of us in our daily lives, no matter what our work is, how we can actually um, pursue words that, mm. you know, that create more justice in the world. Great. I, I think I know the artist, but if you, uh, just in case, uh, please send me the the link. Okay, and I will. Just to I remind will. the listeners and, and maybe tell you, I don't know if you know, but I, I we, uh, we made a Spotify uh, song list called hashtag walk talk listen where all the songs that are chosen by our guests are you know unless they have come up with a song that is not on spotify of course but that didn't happen as yet so um and it's really a cool cool list with classical music uh, heavy metal jazz you know pop all all kinds of so um uh, yeah i I think it's pretty awesome it's inspirational uh, to me at least i always am reminded then about how privileged I am to speak on a on a regular basis with awesome awesome people. Um, you know, we, we have come to the end of the conversation, and one more question I have is is you know your last message or an invitation or a question uh, for the listeners. You know, uh, with <laughs> with the fear of coming off as too self promotional. I mean, my my request for people is always to read globalpressjournal.com because the stories that you will find there will truly change the way that you see the world uh, and your place in it. So I think that that is always my my request uh, for for any audience that that I'm talking with. And you know, sometimes people come to the journal and they say, oh, like. I don't care about Mongolia or I don't know anything about Zimbabwe. And the more time and effort that people spend in Global Press Journal, what becomes so instantly clear is how connected our world is. And I think too much of our media-driven narratives focus on our differences and focus on divisiveness, where uh, you know a key, a key component that comes across in reading Global Press Journal is just how connected the world truly is and how much we can learn from each other. And I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, first of all, yes, check out the stories of Global Press. Um, and I will make sure that the links, you know, of your website, of your social media will be uh, mentioned in the in the podcast notes. That's one. Um, second, I'm, I'm so happy with what you said in terms of, you know, we need to try to connect uh, human beings more and, I, and that's what i try to do through this podcast as well you know it's it's based on the premise of everybody perspectives is true but partial so nobody can be wrong all the time so that means that you know yes you can uh, d- disagree but you should focus on you know where can we have that dialogue and if you start the dialogue you know that's the beginning of of peace 
Um, yep. So I, I, I totally resonate with, with what you were saying just now. And I really encourage people to, uh, yeah, to check out your work. Thank you so much for the conversation. And uh, thank you for what you do. I think, uh, yeah, I wish I, I would have known you 15 years ago already, because then I, I, I had did not have to to catch up with all the stories that, that you were have been publishing. So um, yeah, thanks and, and keep on doing what you're doing. Maurice, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Walk talk, listen, please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. I just finished the 10th 100 mile walk and I really encourage you to check out our website 100mile.org to see how you can still contribute to this campaign. Thank you.